and actually have change being made, then there has to be a, a radical wave of empathy that has to be embodied within people. And that means that you literally have to drop your ego. And that's the key, dude. And, and, and people seem to not be able to ever let go of that. You are listening to the In Full Frame podcast. In Full Frame is the go-to resource for wedding professionals, featuring news from all across our industry and original articles from our industry's leaders. I'm your host, Lance Nicole, and you can find more on InFullFrame.com. Enjoy the show. All right, guys, today we are speaking to Patrick Lay. Patrick is a wedding photographer based in Southern California. He's also the creator and runs the Apollo Workshop. Uh, Apollo Workshops are a film photography workshop that covers everything film with a focus on natural and artificial lighting. I've had a few friends who have attended and have said incredible things about the workshops. Patrick is my investment guru and also an overall badass. What's up, Patrick? What's going on, Lance? How are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. How's life? Uh, well, it's trucking along, you know, just um, dealing with the pandemic and um, social injustice and, you know, all, yeah. all that type of stuff as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to get into that. I uh, We talked a little bit briefly before I follow you on Facebook and you've been one of the my more vocal Facebook friends in an incredible way. Um, so yeah, I definitely want to get into that, but let's start with just, um, how'd you get into wedding photography and talk, talk a little bit about, um, how you got into this? Yeah, I think much like everyone else who, whose family member asks them to shoot some other family member's wedding, you know, that's mm-hmm. a similar case uh, as mine as well. Um, pretty much, but, um, my wife then girlfriend, a very interesting way that we met, but the first year that we we were dating, we decided to take a, a film photography class at a, a local, um, you know, junior college near where she lived okay. um, in Long Beach. And um, so that was, um, I had, you know, when I was growing up, I had all these point and shoot cameras too. Like I remember going to like, whether it was like clubs or like some type of bar type of event and just seeing like a bunch of drunk people get like way too sloshed and, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, spilling lots of different fluids on themselves and taking those types of candid documentary type photos were was definitely like something that I absolutely loved doing and looking back on those photos and just laughing my ass off. But, um, you know, fast forward, we, we ended up meeting in, in 2008 and took a film photography class. We never actually finished that class. And, um, uh, we flunked out because we decided to go in and, and, and make out instead. Okay. <laughs> Worked out. But it's so interesting because, I mean, I still remember and absolutely, absolutely love the process of shooting film and then like, you know, making contact sheets and then doing the printing process um, in a dark room. So like that, I internalize for sure. But, um, you know, starting weddings, you never, I think for the most part, unless you really never touched a digital camera, like you never think about going in the other direction from digital to film. Yeah. And, um, so after, you know, maybe like the first couple months of doing heavy research of wanting to take on shooting weddings, I started dabbling more into film. And I think within like less than a year, um, I went and sought out, um, someone who was selling a Fuji frontier SP 3000 
And that's the big scanner that the professional labs are using yeah. to scan everyone's work. So um, from then it was just all about like just obsessive and compulsory type of like ambition to figure out film, you know, yeah, um, and not just trust what other people are telling me. So um, it, it allowed me to be reckless and, and um, experiment and create my own research about different film stocks and what, what it's actually capable of. And that's kind of how the Apollo Workshops was created. Where in Southern California are you? Uh, I'm in like border of Irvine and Tustin. I grew up in Irvine. So, okay. like, so you're from you know, Southern California. Yeah. You're in the LA area now still. Uh, Orange LA. County, actually. Orange but, County. Yeah. Okay. LA is like about 40-ish minutes north of where I am. Okay. Yeah. So you took the class in 2008. Yeah. Had, did you have any photography experience before that? I mean, like I mentioned, it was a lot more for like personal like photography work. Like when I was a kid, I remember taking photos of my friends skating, you know, like nothing like like Thrasher or anything like that, right. you know, but just as those like seventh graders, just like, you know, skating around the neighborhood and stuff. So, um, yeah, I've always had a camera like on me. I remember just going to either um, what the heck it was, I think, thrifty at the time and then costco that was doing like the okay. one hour photo developing um all, all through all through when i was in college too so um i don't think i had a digital camera until like man probably like when i was 20 23 24 when like that was the thing for for um digital cameras on 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 your cell phone yeah. you know and uh so yeah there was a period of time where like i didn't touch a digital a professional digital camera until like um I, I kind of picked it up as a as a mode of therapy to kind of get away from my other you know occupations. So um, yeah, and then that kind of just naturally led into documenting more people and then asking being asked to shoot a wedding yourself. So yeah. So how old were you in two thousand and eight when you took that class? Well, how old was I? Well, yeah. So she said twenty two is when you got your first digital camera. Yeah. No. Let's see. I was probably two thousand eight. Was like twenty six. I think something like that. Okay. So a few years later, took that yeah. class, and then the, that class was film. Yeah. So like to start off with your first film class. Oh, uh, sorry. Camera like photography class in general. They make you start out on. Um, they they make you start out on uh, film, black and mm -hmm. white film. So you know you try X four hundred is your best friend, and you learn everything that you can about it, and. Um, so I think it was like a, a Canon Elan 2, uh, which was my very first camera. And then just we ended up never finishing it. And so I got an F in that class. <laughs> <laughs> but I remembered everything about it and like everything about my academic career before then. That was like the first failing grade I ever got in school. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. at that time, I, I had already been working full time and, and, and graduated, you know, several years before that. So going back to school, it's kind of like, and I'm being, I'm Asian, so you know, like it's instilled with us, like nothing below like a B is acceptable. You know, it's like right. horrendous to even accept B grades. And then I come in and just be like, all right, well, I'm failing this class to go and spend more time with my girlfriend now, who's <laughs> now my wife. <laughs> yeah. But look, it all worked out, right? You guys are married, you're an incredible <laughs> wedding photographer. So you made some good choices there. That's fine. Um, so what was your so you, you started working not in photography first, right? So what were you doing before that? What were your big boy jobs? Yeah. So, I mean, out of college, I went into um, software sales. It was very strange because my entire college career was related into like a pre-med pathway. 
Um, okay. I, you know, a lot of that was organized to pursue medicine. Um, and in the middle of it, I started picking up some classes and, and at the time could only uh, add a minor um, in business. And that really took the reins. Um, and I was already so many years in and my my university, uh, UCI, was more science-based, uh, um, and they didn't have any majors that related specifically for business, um, business administration or anything like that. And I think the only thing I could have done was taken on an econ major, which, to be honest, I probably should have, you know. But, um, yeah, so I stepped away from, like, the bio biology side entirely. And I finished that with that degree, but um, when I left, it was all about, like, pursuing sales and, and yeah. um, you know, business. So I sold software for a company um, in the commercial real estate industry for um, a good five years or so. And then ironically, the software could tell us that, you know, certain like lending conditions weren't um, going to be survivable or like sustainable in the long term. And that told me that I would not have customers to sell to very right. much longer, you know, before actual real estate agents started getting laid off. And when they started getting laid off and having to find like second jobs, third jobs, and things were really hard with massive layoffs in the economy, um, I started to dabble into investing more and learning about that. And the whole advent of Twitter was just crazy because, I mean, not to make this super long, but it definitely gave me a really deep, dark rabbit hole to climb into to understand that world. And so I started... Um, uh, posting some stuff, got noticed, and and started doing some consulting work for um, uh, um, a firm out in Spain. Wow! And so I was doing that for like about five, no, what, about four years or so, and then getting really burnt out. Uh, and you know, I've I've always been you know leaning on creative things my entire life, um, all through high school and even through college, even in in academics. Like in, in college, I was like running my own tattoo studio out of my dorm room. Nice. <laughs> so it was kind of like my way to continue being connected to art and still pursuing like an academic career too. Yeah. So um, when I graduated at that time, like I had a long list of clients that were kind of upset that I was going in a different direction <laughs> and they had some artwork that was left undone on them. <laughs> so uh, anyways, like. Yeah, like it's weird. My entire life, what I've realized as I've gotten older is like no matter how much you try to run away from a certain aspect that you're really like ingrained within your soul with, it's really hard to escape that. And it comes back to you in some form or another. Yeah. And it just happened to come back to me in the form of photography. So yeah. um, it's going to come back to you for sure. Yeah, you, you can't run away from the things that you're just naturally inclined to, you know, excel at. So um yeah yeah and i mean excel at and also the things that feed your soul i mean something yeah. that i've had to learn over time is that being good at something doesn't mean that you have to do it you know and sometimes we feel like when we do something and we get positive reinforcement for doing that thing that we have to keep doing it but i do think at some point hopefully we all circle back to those things that feed our soul yeah um, and that's creativity or or whatever that is um, hopefully sure. we get back to those things. So are you saying, so Twitter, I mean, you got into Twitter when it was starting. So Twitter was kind of helping you find information related to investing. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, a hundred percent. At that time it did in, in a positive way. Um, nowadays it's very interesting because the dynamics in my opinion are totally different, like different in a sense of using it to your advantage in not the same way that I used to back in 08, 09. 
And yeah. a, a big part of it too was that you would have a lot of fund managers that all of a sudden got caught with, you know, their pants down by their ankles, you know. And when clients were like, well, I'm paying you this massive fee, what what happened to my money? Like, why didn't you see this coming? Right. And so Twitter was great for people who are professional financial advisors and professional traders to post what they knew how to do real time. And if you could follow them and, you know, track that in a, in, in a substantial way, then you could understand that this person knew what they were doing. And then these other people that just were up there on their soapboxes didn't know what they were doing. Right. And so, um, uh, the, it, the, the trend I think over the last 10 years has really been interesting because it's gone from typical large fund type of structures to people who could break that, those requirements down to not have such like stringent, um, parameters to be involved into a fund and you could invest less money for somebody who had better quality, um, not I want to say better quality, but a better track record and better performance than what people were traditionally used to. So it started being, you see, would see money being flowing into what they called single managed accounts um, and smaller proportions and more spread out. And um, I think over the 10 years, it's rebalanced, you know, so you have like larger funds um, taking in more money, obviously, but you have a larger proliferation of smaller people um, and, and professionals um, just rocking it and competing and kicking ass too. So, yeah. um, and a lot of that had to do with just basic, like lack of transparency and the need for more transparency throughout that entire period during the great financial crash. And, um, so yeah, it, it, it's been, it's been crazy. I mean, like you could have like hindsight's 2020, right? You could have just thrown all your money into whatever in 09 and then close your eyes for 10 years and just be right. super happy that you didn't have to worry about things. Um, but you know, no one at the time really, really saw, I think that, um, quantitative easing would have the effect that it did. And so now this is like QE 2.0, yep. 3.0, 4.0, whatever you want to call it. But you know, it's happened again. And uh, in the long term, like to what long term detriment, I don't know. Right. Um, Do you think uh, this is going to cycle back the exact same way? Cycle back in what sense are you referring to? Well, that to? I mean, we're, we're having this dip so similar to what happened in 09 that you could just, if you're throwing money in and, and we wait 10 years, that it'll come back. Yeah, I, I, it's hard for me. Like, I never want to put myself in a position that says this is what's going to happen 100%. You know, yeah. like, I think what we need to see for the rest of this year are that because we had such a violent response back up to, you know, the previous highs, um, do, is the return of jobs going to be that violent as well? You know, mm -hmm. because if it's not, then, then a lot of it is, in my opinion, just artificially inflated because of quantitative easing. And, and, um, and I think everyone and their mom knows that, but, you know, you can argue that as much as you want. If you're not going to be on the ship, though, it's definitely going to leave without you. You know, yeah. so um, yeah, I don't. I, I I think long term will will be okay because that's kind of been always the thing that everyone has believed. But you know, um, I'm ready for big changes, and and that's kind of the nice thing is that just jumping into this thinking that everything is going to go up probably will work for a good period of time, but there will be also times with higher volatility that you're going to see a lot of people that can't handle that type yeah. of those types of moves to the downside. 
Yeah, and then scary. They, they panic and then they they really shoot themselves in the foot. So, um, yeah, it through that time, like you know, learning how to short and trade products that you know took advantage of higher volatility, um, I loved it because it was it was as a double edged sword because you can easily make quick money <laughs> and massive amounts of money like in a leveraged sense but also you kind of are always looking for those types of trades which you know form a confirmation bias and you know put you in a category of being a perma bear which isn't a good thing you know um and so the older that i've gotten a lot of it is really understanding that it isn't about being right or wrong it's just purely about managing your risk and knowing that you have um, that you're being you're staying disciplined to a plan that you have, you know, that you have in mind, because a lot of times we see people on Facebook nowadays. <laughs> it's telling to me because um, I was once there, too, with that same type of like enthusiasm and boldness, you know, right. Right. Um, and that gets you so far until you have your very first big loss. So just as a reference, you've done a, a few uh, Zoom calls where we've had a bunch of people in there. I was in one of them where it's almost like a, a, a 101 crash course on investing. And they've been uh, people in those Zooms that are of different levels. I know almost nothing. You know, I have some money and some funds, that kind of thing. But uh, it definitely changed my entire approach uh, for investing going forward. And you gave some cautionary tales as well in some of those yeah. Zoom calls. So you've, you've kind of paid for your lessons along <laughs> the way, right? I mean, uh, I guess it can be the best way to do it is or best way to learn. Um, yeah. So, I mean, those were super helpful. Uh, why were you doing those, uh, those calls? Because uh, I, I had, you know, friends from outside of the photography industry as well mm -hmm. uh, messaged me and they're like, hey, so are you still trading? And I'm like, I mean, I am personally and for family stuff, but like, um, apart from that, it's not something that I want to put out there, you know, because number one, I'm not licensed to mm -hmm. in that world. And, and, and also like, these are just opinions, you know what I mean? Right. And, and like, to what degree do you take them seriously and then hold me accountable for that if I'm wrong, you know? So I will never say that this is what's going to happen hundred percent. No one's going to, you're going to see that all the time on CNBC and that's what really hurts people. Um, and anyone else who's like that type of person that's on the soapbox, like screaming about like the, the 500% banger that they got on these like leverage <laughs> option plays. And it's like, yeah. you know, a lot of that stuff is, it's not a, a, a consistent thing. It's very rare that I see someone do that consistently. So the person that just is like a mom tog and then, you know, coming off of like their boredom streak of wanting to jump into something else and that they get first, like they get beginner's luck. And then mm -hmm. that allows them to drop their vulnerabilities of, of, of conscious vulnerabilities and thinking that they're invincible. And then, yeah. So I started seeing a lot of people posting, you know, those kinds of very, um, when things get kind of frothy, you know what I mean? Like pe people are just jumping in with, with both feet without like understanding the real risks behind things. Um, that's when I kind of felt it, it should be noted that if you guys are interested in this, like understand that there's a process that you'll go through that I once went through. And if I can help you avoid that, then all the better. Because yeah. at the end of the day, hopefully it saves you some money and helps. hopefully it saves you some loss of emotional capital, you know? Yep. Um, and I mentioned that being, it's not just that you have financial capital, but you have emotional capital that you have to take care of too. 
Um, because I mean, just like someone who's an out of control gambler, or if they've gone on a few losing streaks, you know, the emotions take over mm -hmm. and you start making really bad decisions. And it's the same exact thing when it comes to, you know, trying to manage your own money too. Yeah. And do you want that emotional investment of having to check it every day and having that, that thing in the back of your head that you're always thinking about, you know, um, it's a decision to make where you're going to play a longer term game where you're going to put some money in there and then know that i mean that's when you were doing like the charts and the graphs with the lines going across for multiple years and looking at it in a different way mm -hmm. that kind of changed how i looked at stuff too I, I don't have that emotional investment to make you know um so yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely a personal situation because mm -hmm. and, and a personal meaning that it's very specific to one's personality right if you have just a personality with very low risk tolerance, it's most likely that you're not going to want to get into that rabbit hole of trying to watch every tick mm -hmm. because there's no way that you can have a life and do that at the same time. Right. And then there are those that, you know, have different trading strategies that require you to do that, you know, and even then right now, to be honest, um, to have that, the, the ability to balance your life and go out and, play a round of golf i don't play golf but you know just speaking like theoretically for those who you know have certain things that they enjoy in life that is not work related right um i think in much everything else you know if you're just obsessing about like every little bit of detail you don't have time to enjoy the other things that make you happy to give you balance in life you know so you need to find something that works for you and if it does mean like i'm a very I'm a very analytical person. I, I, I'm very obsessive when it comes to like needing to know all the details too. And that comes into, that's just an innate part, part of my personality. And right. I'm okay, like, you know, watching things a little bit more closely and a little bit more carefully and, and using different things to help me make certain decisions, you know, um, which may, those things might not be applicable for someone who is a long-term type of a player, you know? So, um, yeah, I think for the majority of everyone else, especially if this isn't their primary career, um, this should not be something that they should be, you know, needing to check on a daily basis. Um, if they're, you know, everyone at the time was like wanting to jump into airline stocks and I haven't checked airline stocks um, this week yet, but um, it's we're approaching into the summer trading months and that's when things start slowing down and it's like watching paint dry. It's quite painful, right. you know, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, cruise line stocks, airline stocks, these are so cheap. And it's like, yeah, but they're getting, they're, need, they're requiring bailouts. You know what I mean? Right. Like, are, are they strong companies? If they were strong companies, they wouldn't need bailouts. And are you just relying on the fact that everyone and their mom are going to jump into it or that they actually have a sustainable plan for the long term to grow their company and, and actually have proper valuation, you know? Yep. Um, so I just looked at it and said, there are a lot of better things. They might not be as cheap. But if you're looking at things when things get ugly, look at strong names. Look at names that you know are going to be around for the next 10, 20 years, you know. Um, and a lot of the tech companies for sure, like uh, long term, like, you know, obviously Apple and Microsoft and such like that. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't buy enough on that dip. And, you know, there's only the, there's only so much that you can do, I think. Um, so, so to those that have much more, I guess ignorant courage to have done so <laughs> i definitely applaud you you know but you definitely have the support of the federal reserve because of that yep. and without it i don't think that we would have um, been making these recent highs that we've been making yeah no um, for as sure as, as, as we have so 
Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about, let's go back to weddings a little bit. Um, so I had a somewhat similar experience to you in that I learned on film first. Um, so I, I learned, I think I picked up my first film camera in 2005. Um, I studied fine arts and, and I was using it in a different way where I was just taking pictures. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just using them for other mediums. I was transferring them onto other materials and and then in 2009, I got asked to teach a class. So I actually had to learn digital photography after film photography. Yeah. And then as you were saying, and I want to get your story as well. I had a cousin that asked me to shoot a wedding for them in like 2010, something like that, maybe 2011. Um, I said no, because I couldn't do it. I knew enough to know like this is weddings. I know how to do this and this and this, but weddings is a a culmination of skills that have to yeah. switch in every second and that I cannot do you justice. And they said, well, we have, we have no money for photography. I said, okay, well then I can handle that. Let's, you know, so, um, so that's how I got started. So what was it like for you for your first wedding and how you got into it? Oh boy. Yeah. It was like, I was, uh, I, I had a little bit of money like saved up and I just kind of went the whole Canon route and like got a whole bunch of lenses that I thought that I needed. And I actually didn't, you know, obviously <laughs> I bought like the Canon branded flashes and didn't consider the fact that the, the off brand ones have also worked. So I definitely paid a premium on that end and trying to Don't like, do, man. Yeah, no, right. It's just you just you dive in and you watch as many YouTube videos as you can. And then, uh, you know, you go at it. I definitely tried a few portrait sessions before I did their engagement photos. And I'm like, cool, like I can do this. And then you get on to the day and you're just like, yeah, you're right. Like there's it moves so fast. And like, you know, you really need to have your camera as an extension of your body. You know, you really need to know how you need to um, change certain settings on the fly, you know, in a very quick, quick way. Um, and with digital, for sure, you have the luxury of, you know, tons of, in, uh, uh, basically infinite shots, you know, until your card fills mm -hmm. up, but you're not, lim you're not, um, limited to the number of frames on a roll of 120 film. Right. Um, so at that time, even that, even with that luxury, it was just, man, trying to like, trying to figure out why you're getting a blurry shot when you're shooting wide open and unfortunately at like one thirtieth of a second or one sixtieth of a second. And uh -huh. it's like, this is just, okay, I need practice more, you know? So that was, <laughs> yeah. And learning, so learning how to change it and then also learning how to keep your game face so that as they're looking at you, you look like everything is perfect, right? Like we're well, good. No one's sweating here. I look like a professional. Honestly, I did. And that when I looked on my LCD, I'm just like shaking my head like, what the, what the, you know, like this is not okay. But yeah. the, it's crazy because they are, they, they're the person that whose wedding I shot is um, my, my wife's uh, sister. Okay. And, um, and so when they got married, it was like, you know, it was a pretty big backyard wedding, um, you know, very, very, uh, uh, very nice, very DIY. And so like, and they, they, I go to their house, you know, and to visit her and, and, and their kid and they have all of my work on their walls. And I'm just, nice. every single time I walk in, I'm just like, fuck dude, like, <laughs> I don't want to see my first wedding. And it's yeah. always a reminder about how shitty I was like everyone else was <laughs> on their first wedding, you know? So, yep. um, anyways, like <laughs> I just thought that that was kind of funny to throw in because yeah, yeah, I get away I, from it. 
<laughs> you know, it's if it was someone I didn't know that I didn't ever have to talk to again, then cool. I wouldn't have to be reminded, you know, but yeah. it's definitely humbling walking into a place every single time whose family to see literally they're almost an entire wall in their living room covered with their wedding photos. And I'm like, I so appreciate the fact that you guys love your photos, but mm -hmm. I can't look at them because... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, just you know how much more you progress uh, once uh, the years pass sure. by, right? For sure, man. I remember for that first wedding in particular, being so proud of this one photo. You know, I had done a bunch of just Google searches for wedding photos and cool inspiration. Yeah. And um, so during the reception in this like super dark hall to boot, I had them both hold their, you know, take their rings off, put it in their hands, stick it straight at the camera. And so they had the two rings in their fingers and they yeah. were out of focus. And I was like, this is amazing. This photo is so cool. Yeah. And somewhat recently, like just a few months ago, my wife was like, remember that photo from, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that just, yeah, the, the, the progression and what, what changes, not just in your ability to create um, photos, because the, the skill set, if you're out there shooting a bunch, it, it increases pretty rapidly. I mean, that's one of the things about wedding photography that can be a double edged sword is that if you want to be really good at the technical side, just pressing the button and making those choices, you can get as good at you can get good at that as quickly as you want to, right? Because you can be a maniac about it. You can be sitting at home like I was doing, watching cartoons with my daughter and practicing focusing at different distances and then turn this light off and, you know, just uh, trying to get better. But getting better at what photos you actually want to take mm -hmm. and don't want to take can take a little bit longer and is yeah. probably more important. For sure, dude. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, so when was that first wedding? Do you remember? Oh, All park year? to um 2000 like late 2012 or okay. 2013 i forget so you're seven eight years in now wedding yeah. photography wise right yeah yeah and what is like i mean what's wedding photography world like for you right now what are your what's your ideal weddings what are some fun things that you've been uh well i guess nothing's been going on right but i mean yeah what um, kind of weddings are you into right now Honestly, like whatever wedding, whatever anyone wants me to shoot, really, because, you know, with the whole pandemic issue, like um, really kind of hampering what everyone's normal jive is for a standard, you know, year. Um, yeah, things are just being kicked over towards like late summer, fall. And mm. um, uh, it's weird in the last couple of years with the whole workshop kind of taking off. Uh, more of my time has been balanced towards managing that side of the business yeah. um, and just seeing how much work there is to like run that, that side of the, the world. Um, like last year, last in 2019, we did f four or five workshops. I can't even remember, but like that's for me, that's a lot because it's a ton of work. The t it's a ton of work and like the way that I operate my the workshop is you know most times I feel like it is a matter of us obviously getting all the vendors that, that will collaborate with you on this project you know but um, making sure that you have a venue that you know is 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 in line with what people expect out of like fine art workshops um, but uh, the thing that we try to do differently is to include um, not only the wedding side of the workshop stuff, mm -hmm. but to give people exposure to a studio setting. And um, because it is about lighting and also film and how to work with different types of um, 
photography work that exists within the studio, you know, whether it be for editorial or for commercial or for headshots or anything like that. Um, you know, that's another route that people can add into their income stream apart from weddings. You know, yeah. you and I are men, are, 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 are guys in this industry. And in my opinion, I feel like we definitely have a shorter lifespan than ladies do, you know? So I always am constantly trying to think about how to pivot when I need to pivot rather than waiting right. till it's too late and then trying to figure it out. Right. Yeah. Um, and so if, if weddings start to kind of fade out, then I at least have some other avenues to, to lean on because I have the experience in that. And then also like, you know, it's not trying to learn this whole new thing, you know, um, from ground zero. So, um, we give people at least that type of, you know, the door that they can walk through and exposure to that world. And so that's like the first day is trying to understand like what goes on in a studio, how you would approach things on an in, in like a indoor type of setup. And, um, uh, and then the wedding day, the full wedding day, you know, uh, styled shoot on the second day. And then, and then the last day is being very close to a lab, an actual film lab so that we can actually process what we shot in the last couple of days. And people can see that feedback immediately to yeah, know that critical. Yeah, you know, so so you know, obviously, hopefully, what I they can see in their film negatives that you know Patrick isn't teaching them bullshit, you know. So right. it's not it's not fluff, and I'm not just making it up. So um, so those are the three major components that like make things like so critical and at, at the same time so stressful to plan because it's not like everywhere in the United States and every major city has a film lab that you trust a amazing venue for the wedding day and then a commercial studio all together within right. like, you know, a nice, not so far type of driving distance from each other, you know? So, um, so anyways, like trying to put, organize all those things and then doing that four or five times within a year, you know, that's definitely um, a big chunk of the time, you know? Yeah, no, um, I I've had, I've had a few friends that have taken your workshop, I think two or three, and they've both said the same exact things, which is that, the it's so hands-on and that the instruction and the experience is so clear um and so they just walked away with like i i understand this now and so there's well, something nice. that, yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> yeah i mean that's awesome and there's something to that um i don't know if that's like a specific teaching style that you were shooting for or that's just something that's in you that you know it worked out well that it, it's that you're able to convey that in a clear way but it's it's working uh, I'll give credit to a couple things. Before I started my uh, my sales job out of college, my boss, my then boss, forced me to take Toastmasters, uh, Toastmasters that? International. So it's a it's an organization that helps with public speaking, and they have like local chapters that you can attend. And uh, it was so weird. Like uh, he he forced me to come to his, and it was like all of these like older middle aged to older people. And at the time, I was like. 22 23 right um and he made me get up and do speeches in front of them and you know they're all like they're all business owners ceos of like you know corporations and stuff like that it was like nice to be exposed to those to those people that could help out you know and guide me in, in those ways and and when it came to trying to put this now into my own thing it's like cool i call on a lot of those you know concepts that help me with public speaking that's definitely something I feel everyone should do, especially if they're trying to become educators, you know? Um, and it's not, I don't think I wasn't trying to become an educator. I, I wanted people to get the right information. So 
a, a few things, you know, like tr constantly seeing these people put out these like free film guides to right. learning how to shoot a film. And it's just, you go to their site and you go and download all these free film guides, but where did they get their information from? You know, they mm -hmm. heard it from, from another photographer. And there's so a lot of this stuff is like being regurgitated and the, what, the settings that people were trying to share as like go-to settings for shooting film, like 400 H or portrait 400, you know, all, um, I think the pers first person that wrote it back in the day was like Jose Villa. You know what I mean? So what did everyone do when they first got into film photography or at least wedding, fine art film photography for weddings? You know, they went and got Jose's book. Right. And then all they're doing is just regurgitating Jose's settings for 400H and, and Delta 3200 and wh whatever, you know? And like, it, it, you can't just make a workshop based off of regurgitating jose settings like the world of film is so much larger than jose like not yeah. to knock jose you know but there was life before jose and and so seeing that people were doing that and then also charging like horrendous amounts of money for basically you know a, a pretty vacation out to like the countryside in provence you know and setting up this beautiful shoot that's great for portfolio stuff but like what else did you get for all that money you know and i got really frustrated seeing a lot of people come back and and say that you know what this it they they sold it this this workshop host sold it and it was just kind of really disappointing and it fell way short than mm. what i thought it was worth and i said to myself it's like damn dude if they're paying that much you better be learning something new you know so i made it a great point to to be like look i can give you all that stuff but you're I'm a, i actually want to teach you stuff that you don't see as just the photographer like i need to find a way to bridge the gap between you as a photographer shooting film to you finally getting your results back from the lab and seeing how amazing that work was. Right. You know, there's that big gap that Pete photographers don't see because they're not on the lab side. And like with the only thing that allowed me to bridge that gap was to be the person that scans my own film, you know, and, and actually do my own developing, at least on the black and white side. Um, and also having such a great lab locally nearby to support me in, in, in being able to, allow me to affordably have my film developed so that I can go home immediately and scan my results. Like literally, if not the same day, the next, the very next day that I shot film yeah. and, and all of those concepts that I was kind of, you know, researching and, and experimenting with, I could verbalize them and put them, organize them into a way to, to share and teach. Yeah. You know, so like an example, as an example, like I don't understand why people need to rate 400 H at 100 ISO. Like, 400H is quite capable to just be overexposed by a stop because like the way that people meter, there's so many different ways that you meter. Like there's all these other different variances as to like, you know, how much light that it actually needs to have uh, what I call meeting your exposure threshold. And, you know, like, so that's a big thing that we go through. How do you figure out what the heck the exposure threshold is? Yep. You know, un unless you really dive into the nuances of what film is. And that's a lot of what the, the workshop is going in and, and what and the reason being is because there are times where people have you know gotten from these free guides to use these particular settings and now they're getting results back from the lab that they're absolutely not happy with and yep. and and they don't realize that the lab is actually doing quite a lot of work that has to repair their bad habits you know to give them the look that they want yeah. um and yeah. and and why because they've gotten that information from from people who who just regurgitated information that they couldn't confirm. Yeah. So, um, yeah.
that's pretty, no, those are the two major reasons about why this workshop was created. So the more that I showed my work, people kept on asking, like, what were your settings? And I'm like, it's not that easy. Right. Like, it's not that easy to explain. Like, I ha there's so many other things that you have to understand first before we can go into even talking about settings, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. No, I think that's awesome. And I think that's, that's all spot on. And there's a lot in that. Um, I would imagine you having your own scanner, that investment was is probably paid you back you know, a hundredfold, not just in lab fees, but the education, right? That a lot of people yeah. are not on. Um, I'll say the short answer is yes. The more complex answer is that um, it, it wasn't without obviously taking lots of my blood, sweat, and tears and time to enjoy those benefits. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like to understand what a lab goes through to to deliver the work back to you as a photographer within the time frame that they're guaranteeing it is absolutely insane. Right. Like it, it, you get what you pay for. And a lot of times if you're, if any mistakes that you don't like from your work, I want to say 90% of the time it's your fault, not the lab's fault. So, yep. um, and that's what photographers don't, don't realize. Like, it's not just that you, they magically sprinkle some fairy dust on your film and it becomes exactly how you want or at least because you see the way that Jose's work comes back, you know, or um, uh, Elizabeth Messina or, you know, Perry Vale. I love Perry, Perry Vale's work. You know, it's so beautiful, but there's a specific way that she shoots and, and the film, the lab does an amazing job to get what she's expecting out of them, you know, yep. and it comes down to communication, dude. Um, and obviously not, not doing insane shit that you hear through the grapevine um, in your, in your film techniques, you know? So, right. um, yeah, that's kind of my my objective really is to kind of say you can shoot film in a lot of different like scenarios. It's very flexible. It's got so much latitude. You just know how like what to pay. You need to know what to pay attention to in certain settings. And I think people are just so automatic with just feedback these days that mm -hmm. they just want like one thing that works for all. Right. And I'm like, uh, it's I don't think it's that easy, you know. But yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, when you have someone, whether it's Jose or whoever it is saying, I rate, I shoot Portrait 400 and Ilford Delta 3200, and I rate it at this, that's great, but there's variables and he knows his variables. And so everyone, and it's almost not that educator's fault. It's that I teach, um, I have a community college down the street. I teach classes and I get that question. Well, what setting? I'm like, no, no, dude. There's no setting. That's not how this works. Mm. There's so many variables and it's digital. So it's a little bit different for them. But with film, you know, you have to know why it did this when it did that, right? You know, oh, well, I, I did the setting and they want that answer. So my point was, it's almost as much the, the student's fault, right? Because they're just like, well, just tell me what it is. Just tell me 200. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's go. No, but hold on. There's there's 30 other things that we need to pick up on on variables. Where is your light source? Is it backlit? Right. You no, know, is the sun high in the day? Is it not? And it can be really hard to learn that. Um, and it can be difficult to you know, know that you need to want to learn those things, yeah. right? For me, I developed all my own 35 millimeter film when I started, so I knew a little bit. But then when I started shooting 120 for weddings, I wasn't developing because I didn't have the time. And so there was a learning curve for me as well. But that I picked up a lot because I was the I was probably a pain in the ass to my lab because I would call them all the time and I would say, "Hey, can we go over these three rolls? Two of them are amazing, one's not. I don't want to know why." It was never their fault. It was always my fault but I needed to know why it was my fault. What's going on here? And you start to pick that up and know that 
what you said, film has so much latitude. I almost hate it when I see in groups that someone's asking, how do you rate Kodak? And then you have 20 people respond with like absolute confidence. It's 320, it's 250, yeah. it's 200. It's like, <laughs> no, the answer is a paragraph long, guys. Like that's not, the, the Kodak is amazing because you have the flexibility. That's why yeah. you're shooting Portra because it does amazing things. It's not a one button thing, you know? So yeah. yeah, it's not that easy. And thank God it's not that easy. I don't know if I want it to be a one button thing. <laughs> yeah, that portrait 400 at 320 is definitely one of the things that probably most triggers me. Um, knowing that, <laughs> like, I love portrait 400 so much and just knowing how flexible it is. And yeah. it's just absolute a crock of horse shit. If anyone listens out there who's like big and, and, and shoots at 320, uh, I'll still tell you, like, don't. I'm Matt Patrick. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, let's shoot, <laughs> stick to 400. That's all that you have to worry about, you know. And if you're shooting the contacts, for example, like that contacts doesn't shoot third stops, you know what I mean? So like why think that you're doing anything, you know, more impressive? And it's not. It's just it's just the happenstance of the quality of light that you were in and knowing that you your meter, you stuck to what your meter was telling you and, and knowing that even at 400, you were getting a good exposure at like whatever shutter speed that and, and f-stop that it you were trying to shoot at. So, um, yeah, man, like, uh, dude, again, like I, I can't say how important it is to, to really honor your lab and, and, and work with a lab that it won't find it, um, a burden to help educate you in understanding how to be a better film shooter, you know, um, because at the end of the day, it makes their job a lot easier too, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it makes a, it makes a loyal customer. So I I can appreciate calling my labs and saying, "Hey, can we go over this?" and, and not getting the, "Okay, sure, dude, let's do it." No, it was, "Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah. We'll call you back in thirty minutes and let's go." And when I was done asking questions, they were, "Hey, do you have more questions?" So, and that's that's a that's multiple labs. So that comes down to the reason why they are the the top notch labs is there's something to the process and, and everything else. But, you know, once you can figure out the the chemicals and the technique and get the staffing in, which is not simple, there's something to just your customer service and the fact that you're caring about your clients and your customers, which I'm great, greatly thankful for. And again, anyone listening, if you're not utilizing your lab, you know, there's a reason why you're paying 16 or $20 a roll. That's a lot of money. Uh, it's not just, I mean, they are doing a lot of incredible things to your scans and you should also do yourself a service and get you and look at your actual like get someone to scan them without any adjustments get a bunch of your roles and do that and see what you're actually shooting and know what they're actually doing but also know that most of those labs are happy to spend time with you on the phone and go through roles and teach you lessons because they're helpful they want loyal customers and also like you said patrick in the long run it is going to make their job easier yeah definitely for sure yeah, I, and I, I think, that, I mean, it's a, it's definitely, a, it's 100% a customer service thing, you know, like, I, um, you know, like, I'm going to definitely give a shout out to Goodman Film Lab and, and my, my personal second shooter, who is now a lot of other people's personal second shooter, because he's that good. Um, he, his name is Vin Lee. And, you know, if you call up, you ask for Vin at Goodman, like, he'll walk, he'll take, he'll definitely be more than happy to take the time to walk you through, you know, different ways that he would approach to shooting film and, and, and understanding how to shoot film and what it's capable of and knowing as a person speaking from the, the lab scanner side, you know, and seeing how much flexibility you have once you, you've, your exposure techniques are good, yep. you know, like 
it, that's amazing. I know Fine Lab. I'm not sure if they're still doing this. I haven't used them in a while, but I mean, I love John and and Belinda and everyone at the Fine Lab too. Uh, I'm really loyal to them as well in in in, in different ways. But um, they would give uh, feedback in in emails and saying that you know here's your scans and then you know here's what you could do to improve or maybe you can pay attention to this and that. But um, yeah, like I think as people who are in majority of the people that I, that have, that come to the workshops and are now attendees and a part of the Apollo workshops family, um, and I, the more people that, that I market to are definitely, um, the fine art film photographers in the wedding industry. And, uh, you know, most of them, if not all are very much, you know, 99% like natural light leaning types of mm -hmm. shooters, you know, yeah. and somebody who's a natural light shooter not to knock you guys down but you know you do definitely have uh you take advantage and 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 um of of not having to worry about understanding where your light's coming from because it's quite a repeatable process once you find like open shade or soft backlight you know mm -hmm. at certain periods of time then that's great you're going to just do your thing and you're going to rock it you know but you know we have seasonal changes with suns setting earlier than later you know there are time schedules that aren't always going to be um perfectly followed you know and there are things that get delayed and yeah. those delays sometimes result in in your expect your expected you know natural settings to shoot into not being there anymore you know so yeah. you got to figure out a way to if you want to have that brand aesthetic consistency that everyone is always seeking and searching and, and trying to, you know, um, incorporate into their work, um, you have to understand how to break that light down and recreate it, you know? Um, and, and I think most people, they don't take the time to even consider that. And whether that's, it's too much of like, they get inundated and it's too overwhelming for them to even think about, um, you know, and also keeping in with the endurance to keep up your ambition to to do good work as the long wedding day, you know, comes along and gets into the evening time. Yeah, you know, so all these factors come into play in, in, in trying to help people learn how to break down, you know, light and understand it, whether it be natural or artificial, you know, so you can still get a consistent look either way. It's just your ability to really understand light from a very um, from a very deep level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think to be a good to great wedding photographer, one of the things, and it's a huge part of it is you, you cannot say no and you cannot have this massive fall off between here's what, no, I, I deliver, let's say 800 photos for your wedding and 600 of them are, you know, a, a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, whatever level. And then those other, those reception photos or those 50 family photos that were late because the day ran late and they're out they're you know, outside in the dark and, or whatever, that the drop off is a two out of 10. Mm -hmm. Like that's not okay. That's not going to get you rehired. Mm -hmm. And if you're charging 10, 15, $20,000 to a client that has high expectations, they're not going to be cool with like this massive drop off. That's a professional wedding photographer is a hard job. It's easy yeah. to get into, but being good at this means being good at every part. And you can't say no. One of my, you know, favorite anecdotes, I, I'm a film shooter, but I also bring digital cameras along. I shoot digital during the day. And when someone asks me, it's very easy. I say, okay, here's an example that happened to me. I shot family photos for 
uh, for a group. And then we were standing outside in the front of the church. The sun was going down. It was fading. And they said, can we get the family photo with grandma? Grandma is 97 years old. She can only come out here one time. She's going to walk and the, the walk's going to take her 10 minutes. I can't say no. Right. I mean, and then by the time she gets there, we, we shot everything in beautiful sunlight. It, things went a little bit slow. By the time she gets to the front, it's nighttime. So <laughs> yeah. do I go, hey, guys, so if we could all get inside the church and reset this and I could get my lighting out or, or whatever, like, no. And it also can't be crap either. Yeah. One of the most important photos for this family, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, and sure. that's why that's why you have to be flexible. That's why you have to know your lighting. That's why you need to just be ready to say yes and de deliver quality all the time. It's mm -hmm. really important. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll expand on that too. Uh, as wedding photographers, I feel that a lot of their, it, it, I'll just say it, a lot of their ignorance comes from, I feel, being uh, only shown the the same stuff that you would see on Style Me Pretty, right? Where all it is is just light and airy aesthetics and you know um i rarely do i see like any in-depth reception photos you know and a lot of it is trying to maintain a consistency of aesthetic in their posts that speak the style me pretty brand and unfortunately it translates to photographers thinking that that's how everything has to look from mm -hmm. the day to the last you know moments of the evening and the reality is that if you go with that, if you go with that notion, you you ignore the context of what it means to to be going from day to night. You know, you 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 discount like the feeling and emotions that come with the evening. You know, and sometimes it's better portrayed when you do embrace that darkness too. And so a big part of what we talk about in the beginning isn't diving into gear or isn't diving into settings you know like we mentioned earlier it's about yep. diving into philosophy about what you what you think is good storytelling you know and and what it means as to expand your brand and and what they're thinking of as brand aesthetic if you expand your brand aesthetic then it expands your brand and has a, a more of a reach to more clientele i think Right. And, um, you know, a more diverse uh, variety of clientele that, you know, you can definitely benefit and compound on, you know, um, yeah. I feel people definitely because of the aesthetic that we've been kind of married to in the last five years uh, with the whole advent of wedding blogs, uh, no matter who they are, um, it's kind of convinced people that this is how it has to be done, you know, and I want people to think way beyond that because, you know, if you look at John Dolan's work, who's like as much antithetical in terms of philosophy of what I teach in terms of actually introducing artificial light, sure, he definitely prioritizes, you know, moments as they occur, real time and without intrusion. You know, like actual true documentary photography, um, and. I absolutely adore that too. Even though this is what I teach in terms of how to artificially light and amplify a particular look, you know, and doing things this and that way when you need to introduce, you know, your own lights. Um, but, you know, I, I don't say that what John does in, in the work that he creates based on his philosophy is anything in, in, in which way, anything that I disagree with as well, you know, like it really has to be specific with 
with what you feel and, and understand as why you go about this particular, you know, workflow and process to be the storyteller you want to be, you know, and if that's the way you want to go, then I mean, you can only benefit from the workshop because now when you need to break out those particular tools, because you, there's no way around it, you know, um, yeah. then you can do both. That's, what's awesome. I have a, a student, um, a past attendee who did both my workshop and then she did John's workshop. And like, I was just floored to see her work now because it's definitely customizing both of what I've taught her and what she's gained from John's workshop by tenfold and then makes it her own. And that's the way that I feel that you differentiate yourself from the competition, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, And, and yeah, that's, what's crazy. Like I, I, and I think a lot of times that I've gone through past workshops of my own, I, you know, I walked away thinking that this is the only way to do things because that's what the host said, you know, and that's definitely not what I want people to get out of the workshop that I teach. It's definitely like, here are all the tools and techniques on the table. I want to share everything with you so that you know what's out there. Now you go and pick and choose what you think is right for what your, you know, uh, process and aesthetic is. Yeah. Um, and you make it your own. I'm not going to tell you what's right or what's wrong. If you see something you liked and you want to know how it was created, then let me share that with you. And then you go and, and, and apply that in your own way and make it your own. And, and, and that's how you identify yourself to be different than everyone else. Right. Out there, you know, so. Well, yeah. I mean, what's wonderful about what you're doing and the way you're explaining this is you're building a foundation for someone, right? So the antithesis to saying, here's the setting for this camera stock and here's the setting for this situation and here's how you light this and go. The opposite of that is here are all the tools, just like you're saying, this is this field, here's your foundation. You take this and then you go make it your own, right? And that's how you go from just being okay at best to finding your own voice and possibly walking towards being great at something, whether it's photographer or anything else. If you're just following a formula, it's not yours. I mean, if you're yeah. a painter and you're just copying a style, you can look at the greatest greatest painters of all time who went and studied under another great painter. They have this entire uh, group of work that is that same style that they learned under. And then, boom, here's their next thing. And then there's their third evolution right. and their fourth right. evolution. They built a foundation and then they walked forward, took some chances, probably did some terrible shit that we never got to see, right? But had fun doing it. Same thing with photography. It's okay if there's some terrible stuff in there. Um, maybe not for a wedding, but that's why you need to be going out and shooting all the time. Shoot for yeah. yourself all oh, for the sure. time. Yeah, dude, yeah. personal work is huge. I mean, I, I wish I could have something to show being stuck in, indoors during this entire pandemic, you know, but um, it's it, like... Uh, I, I think of myself not just a wedding photographer, even though that's definitely a big part of the bread and butter that comes in, you know, so, um, but to as like passions of mine, like any type of, of things socially that occur, you know, back during the time of um, the 2016, 2017, uh, Black Matters Live protests, the Women's Marches. Uh, March for Our Lives, you know, protesting um, or at least, you know, gun control issues and all that type of stuff, like being out there and documenting people that are voicing, you know, making their voices heard in a public setting, showing emotion, showing showing objective and, and things that are actually impactful, more impactful, I think, to the world than just 
a couple's wedding day that's important to selectively just those two people on a random Saturday or Sunday or Friday or whatever, you know, um, trying to think about how you having the privilege of having the ability to tell a story visually and how you go about, you know, um, using that tool, like, you know, that weapon, you know, cause it yep. is to, for, for the better good of humanity, you know, like, Do documentary photography is not only just the fact of just going out there and street shooting, but you're, you're creating history, visual history, you know, and learning certain techniques about, you know, getting out of the mindset of always shooting wide open. You know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh, people do that. <laughs> yeah, they do that. You'll never go and see a wide open photo, you know, during street photography, you want to see depth of field. And so these other genres of photography, if you take a chance on it and try to educate yourself and seeing that, you know, when, when we're all in the same room together, who all have the same styles and the same methods of shooting and, and doing certain, some, some things, we're not, there's no real innovation, you know, there's mm -hmm. no, uh, you know, you're just all in a circular, um, uh, uh, system of confirmation bias, you know, anything that opposes that all of a sudden, you know, you're ostracized and thinking that that's not okay, you know? And, and so anyways, I think that people definitely in the wedding industry should, should venture out to help them become better for their clients and also better for themselves, you yeah. know, like more so I feel like, and, and because you're better for yourself, then you can serve your clients better, you know? So yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, there's a thing we all have as photographers, this talent, this skill set, these tools, weapons, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, whether you look at it as a responsibility or an opportunity to go out and document history, it's definitely, these are images that if you're getting out there and shooting that will last way longer than your wedding photos will. You know, I know we, yeah. we tell our clients and we all have family photos that have last generations that we hold on to, but think of these iconic images that we see over and over again even if not, they're not the iconic image, they're just an image that was taken five years ago, 10 years ago, but they tell the story of a generation of a time yeah. and it just is getting out there and shooting, you know, yeah. um, and you grow, you become, you will become a better wedding photographer because you're out there carrying a camera with you all the time, getting out there, taking pictures. You're just gonna, you're gonna grow as a photographer, possibly as a person as well, um, by taking the time to just watch and look and learning how to, see those moments in real life mm -hmm. yeah definitely definitely yeah um yeah i can't i can't expand on that other than you know like do more than just being a button clicker you know mm -hmm. um <laughs> yeah 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 um, i've tried really hard over the last couple of years to and my wife would probably laugh if you heard me say this but i've, I've tried really hard to have a camera on me um, more often i i had an attitude going back a few years that you know it would be when well, we're going to someone's birthday party or we're going on vacation, bring a camera. And I would have the, the, the attitude that, well, the camera is my job and I'm not at work today. So I'm not yeah. bringing a camera. And as that perspective change has happened for me that I want to have my, have my little contacts T2, it's a joy to shoot. So that helps a lot, but just that I want to have that in my pocket and I'll carry it with me and not even take a picture sometimes, but to know that it's there and I'm always thinking about what might happen today in front of me that might be cool um, is really helped me grow as a photographer. And I'll sometimes have one roll of 35 millimeter black and white in there for three, four weeks, you know, 
Um, and there's something freeing about that too, to know, like, I don't feel like I have to take the picture, but I'm yeah. always thinking about is the picture there. So, yeah, I mean, just taking pictures in general. And I've had um, younger photographers, students ask me, you know, how can I get better? Well, it's not just you need to be a photographer for 50 years to be better. It's you didn't take a million photos just go take more photos and you can take more photos right now you can go take ten thousand photos next month you know yeah. um not just and go you know that's not what that what i mean but just you have to shoot a lot and it's going to make you a better seer a better looker a better waiter mm -hmm. uh, which is all required to to find those moments it's not a coincidence that certain photographers always capture those moments yeah. you know they're it's not because they're taking a million photos on a wedding day they just see them a quarter second before they happen because they observe life all the time yeah yeah i it's uh i mean i think about like Henri cartier brisson and like or um i forget who exactly it was maybe um not irving penn um Gary Gary Wanagrand. Um and I don't know if Gary if Gary was the one that used the fifty so much more than than um Henri Cartier Brisson used to do, but like trying to frame things in a thirty five millimeter format in a fifty and like stopping down mm -hmm. you know to F eight and actually making like an amazing composed image, you know, uh, is so much more difficult than defaulting to wide open in a yeah. 50 and then you know blurring the rest of the background out you know try like when you when you go through and are able to visualize things that way and i'm saying this is like i wish i was that good you know right. because i'm definitely not there yet um but you know going and and framing things and things that are difficult to frame with certain focal lengths and coming out successfully i think speaks as a testament of your ability to to visualize, pre-visualize better than the next person that just defaults to wide open. Yeah, for you sure. Know? Shooting an yeah. F eight is way harder than shooting F two. Yeah, because you can, you have to, like you said, you have to look at everything. You have to consider the yeah. entire scene. That's a, it's a great practice to help you as a wedding photographer because then when you are shooting an F two and you're shooting that family photo and that one guy in the orange jacket is, you know, a hundred yards away and no one sees him or cares, but you know because you're looking when you're shooting at F eight that everything matters. You go, hold on, hey buddy, could you move? You know, and that's it, it saves the picture. You know, it's a yeah. little thing like that, but it's experiences that come together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's um I I think a few different practices too like uh. Um, you know, shooting, say, with like a, a, a contact six for five or often I, you know, in, in in 2018, 2017, maybe I might have sent the one of the contacts lenses to be modified by uh, the Boca factory for mm -hmm. use on the Pentax six four five. Nice. But that's being stuck in, at F2, you know what I mean? And so like if I want to go around being able to focus quickly and be able to nail F2 no matter where I'm at, like, well, you're right. You got to go and pick up the camera, focus, man, like, you know, lock onto that clarity and knowing, you know, how much, how much you would roll that, um, um, that, that focus knob to get to your point of focus and range of, 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 you know, safety, like that's all about practice, you know, and, and, um, doing that even without firing, you know, yeah, yeah. the shutter itself, it's just a matter of knowing how quickly it's going to take you to visually get to that clarity. And, whatever the case may be with whatever lens setup, like that's important, you know, like yeah. I know people who, who have Leica's like a M6, M3, M2, whatever. Um, and they're stuck on 35, 
you know, and knowing like if they're stopped down, how, how much distance do they take to shift the focus ring to get to a certain area of focus? Like they're so fast to the point that I would argue sometimes even faster than autofocus. Right. You know, because yeah. that they, they have that, they, they perform like that as a, a true extension of their body. Um, uh, anyways, so yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So I will tell you that when I look at your work now and I, I have, I don't have the, the benefit for this conversation to know what your work looked like five or six years ago. But when I look at your work now, I look at it and go, these photos are Patrick's photos, you know? They're not like an Instagram feed of just the like regurgitation regurgitation cycle. And they look like you can look at your, your grid and go, these are yours. It looks like to me that you are someone that been able to take that jump to shoot for yourself. Even when a client is hiring you, that it's your photos. Was that easy for you? Was that innate that like, this is mine, so I'm going to shoot my way? Or did, was there a leap of faith for you to go, you know what, it's time to start shooting for Patrick? It's weird. I think that like, as much as I've tried to, um, to conform to a grid that is very much in line with fine art photography type mm-hmm. of like expectations, you know, in our little niche world, um, the more that I tried to, the more that I realized I didn't have light enough, pastel enough looking photos to make that grid, you know? And so I just focused on like photos that I liked, you know, and just like it was either well exposed and, and the colors are proper and like they're really showcasing like the qualities of film, mm-hmm. um, you know, like those kinds of things. And I just tried as much as I could to pay attention less to the grid. And as much as I think people, especially in the last few years, were so obsessive about, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I, you know, going back to that thing about being in the same room with everyone with the same, with the same preferences and the same ways of shootings, and it becomes very homogenous, you know, um, trying to put my mind in, in my mindset to adopt that was a struggle. So I tried to go in that direction. And then yeah. I just said, you know what? this is the work that I have to show. Like, let me just show it. And, and I haven't posted much on Instagram, honestly, since the last year, I want to say, um, you know, things definitely got shifted around this without the pandemic. I, I, I think we, I, I would have actually had more time to refocus back onto, um, uh, refocus back onto the wedding side and then get that kick started, you know, much quicker than being almost kind of like in limbo now, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, the workshops, I made it an effort to um, not do as many as I did in 2019. So going forward, we'll probably only have like two each year. Okay. One in California and then one in um, in on the East Coast, probably in New York. But um, yeah, that being the case, like I, I, I just wanted to kind of refocus back on what I was happy about in my own wedding work. And hopefully in the next, you know, coming into 2021, all of that will look a little bit more complete. Um, yeah because I think for years I never really had like a proper website. <laughs> that's that, you know, like I, I've definitely not been on the business side of the, of things being on top of that for sure, admittedly, but more so on like execution and working for myself as, you know, creatively, I think was more my focus, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, that's definitely long winded answer to get to your question, but like, yeah, I tried to go in that direction, came back, and I just settled on to, like, the work that I still have. Right. And now thinking about, you know, like, the workshop itself, like, not to try to say that, like, 
we're we're on board with diversity and that's the trendy thing now you know but before i definitely we saw you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that it wasn't obvious because it was very obvious that you know lots of different style shoots that we kept on seeing did not have diversity mm-hmm. you know and and so when i first started the workshop i said well let's get some diversity into this because I'm, I'm not seeing it that's all that there is to it i'm just yeah. not seeing it so back in 2018 when we first started the workshop um and every single workshop since that i've had we've had i've had mixed couples you know um and not not as an intention but you know definitely the vendors that i worked with they wanted to see more representation of diversity because they themselves you know were non-white Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool, I'm, I'm down for that. I'm not trying, my objective isn't to get published. My objective is, is just to create something that people are passionate about, like wanting to be involved in, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we were, you know, so majority, majority vendors that were involved were all, um, you know, minorities and, and, and not because that was the intention, but that was the people who I happened to connect with at the time. Yeah. And we ended up uh, working really well together and we continued um, working with each other, you know? Um, yeah. And so, uh, anyways, like with workshops going forward, um, I think we'll always kind of include um, include diversity in, in that way and continue pushing that envelope. Hopefully, more so in the next coming years. That's awesome, man. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, well, you said earlier in the very beginning when we started to talk that um, part of your day right now is is fighting social injustice, um, <laughs> which yeah. But you know, on the serious note of that, is that. There's, there are things in our world that are incredibly important to all of us. There is an opportunity that we need to keep the momentum on. But, I mean, talk a little bit to, you know, you're, you're posting like crazy on Facebook. What's- yeah, so, okay, like to Facebook in general for me, when I started posting in photography groups, I posted behind my dog's Facebook account. So yeah, that's who's Dexter? You don't even yeah. have, Antrick doesn't exist on Facebook. Dexter, Dexter is an actual dog and Uh he is my, my, my Doberman. And that's why you see his photo on my profile. (laughs) But so, you know, early on it was more about, so I can post so that people wouldn't come back and like write bad things on my personal page because I was trying to be more honest about things that I really wanted to say when certain topics came up, you know? And so it was more freedom free for me to, to express myself, um, how I truly want to express myself. I think when people have, uh, their business to worry about, then they're more reserved in what they're really expressing to people online, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I did that more as like a joke. And then like I, people just started adding me on friends and I started adding more people on friends. And then, so Dexter has more friends than, than I do on my personal Facebook page, which is, more tied to like old friends from like high school and college, you know? Yeah. So, um, but, um, in, and, and so there was a period of time where I just normally never posted anything on, on the page, on my personal timeline, you know, on Dexter's personal timeline, it was more like reposting cute dog things and like funny random things that I noticed. And like, if there was some type of market aberration that was like a outlier for that particular, you know, series of days or weeks, maybe I might share something there and that's the most. And so there would be like months on end that I wouldn't ever post. And then I started noticing like more things coming in with the whole pandemic thing happening. I posted things there and just saying, Hey, like this is kind of worrisome coming out of China. This is definitely coming here to the United States that got me, you know, prepared myself on, on my end in di- different various, you know, uh, uh, avenues. 
but um, trying to share this early on when people weren't ever talking about it, you know, back right. in, in January, February at all, you know, and then it started, it started coming here and then people started, you know, uh, getting a little crazy about it. And so, um, and then after that, you know, the whole pandemic stuff kind of came into play. Then, then everything with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud uh, Barry, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm not saying his last name correctly, but um, you know, uh, it, 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 to me, it, it wasn't anything really new for me, but really what helped, I think the wave become so big as, as big as it's been is the, is not only, is not only just the national response, but the international response, you know, the, um, the fact that it's not just located specifically for Los Angeles during the 92 riots or, you know, Baltimore in 2016, 2017, you know, in those specific locales, right. it's 350 plus cities across the country that are involved in this. And like, to me, I was like, okay, let's, let's get going because now people are waking up. People yep. are, you know, more so I feel each time people are like, we're, you know, we're woke, we're, we're there and I'll be like that. And it's like, okay, but then the time passes and then the momentum subsides. And, and, you know, I, I think to do justice by, um, our black brothers and sisters is to not let that momentum subside, even though I feel myself, you know, it's overwhelming. And I know that I have a high tolerance for, you know, some adverse news, yeah. you know, um, and that was my life for several years. And, uh, you know, just being in, enveloped in that type of, in that type of, of, of headline type of world, you know, and so my tolerance is very high, but even now I, I felt definitely, um, uh, uh, my energy levels have kind of like, you know, suffered a bit, but that's part of, that's part of the empathy that I think people need to have to, yeah. to, to do better, you know? Um, and so, yeah, like that's a, a lot of it is really just kind of come down to, um, getting people to be more aware and just to be more empathetic and to literally just drop their ego. You know, um, I think, I mean, if I'm talking to a to a public here, then the things that I say, I know I to kind of pivot a little bit this year, being not being able to teach live workshops, I've put on um, the masterclass instead online, and it's not a uh, something you download. It was a live masterclass that you would actually learn through, you know, Zoom meetings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I I start I start each one the same way, you know, after what's happened in saying that you know, we have people that we talk to or we hear things about or things get shared around and, and people are just so like dug into their own opinions, you know? And that's like, okay, you, you have every right to have whatever opinions you have, you know, but if you, if you want to, if you want to move past all of this, I feel like if, if we want to move past it in a positive way and actually have change being made, then there has to be a, a, a radical uh, um, wave of empathy yeah. that has to be embodied within people. And that means that you literally have to drop your ego and that's the key dude. And, and, and people seem to not be able to ever let go of that, you know, and, and it actually happens to be such a huge thing and, and, and a resolution and solving so many issues like mental and social, you know, uh, uh, whatever the case may be. And right. it comes into knowing like how much of your ego is standing in your way of coming together and doing better. Yeah. And I don't mean to sound like so like wishy-washy woo-woo out there, but like, man, yeah. 
it's it's definitely something that I've learned to be like a thousand percent the truth as I've gotten older. Yeah, I mean, we have to stay open-minded, otherwise we're just stuck. I saw something today that said something along the lines of, let's normalize being okay with changing our minds after being presented with new information. And I've said for years, I get so aggravated when I hear when, you know, when it's election time, someone say, Oh, well, in 2008, they, their opinion was this. And then in 2010, their opinion is this. I'm going, that's, well, that's the person I want to vote for because they actually were able to change their mind. Now, maybe, yes, they, they looked at the numbers and they said, we need to be in line with these, you know, um, ideals to get these votes. But if there's a politician person that is like for 30 years, I've felt the same way about everything, then you're an idiot. You're not, you know, you're closed minded. You have a huge ego. You're not moving forward. So yeah, we have to put our egos down and be available for new information and have discussions that allow for someone to say, okay, we both disagree with this thing. It's not going to hurt me for me to have a different opinion from you why don't you tell me why you think this i'll tell you why i think that maybe we'll learn something maybe we won't but let's put our egos down and have a conversation i mean that expands and expounds on so many different topics but is is hugely critical right now as well yeah i i it's it's definitely like that example you just shared is like you know you have so many people that come in that want to have some input into like okay i hear you but then this but then Mm. that and it's like when people start interjecting and having that dialogue it's i feel like it's productive to a certain point but then for for that new sense of like self and wanting to put yourself out there completely altruistically it requires the ability to let go of your ego that most people even for those that you know, are those that feel that they are good citizens and they go to church and they're, you know, they respect their neighbors and family and friends and all that type of stuff. And they're pretty much doing everything by the book, you know, that they've known to be right. And then all of a sudden for someone to come in and say, like, actually, what you've been doing for the majority of your life has been perpetuating other people's pain. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, that can't be that can't be, you know, like, I just don't believe it. And like, you know, like not not seeing the total pie of America as including those that suffer in poverty and are not as privileged or, you know, all these other things that they experience on a daily life, uh, on a daily basis in their lifetime, you know, how much time do we as people who are not in that scenario spend thinking about them? Mm -hmm. Hardly, hardly not at all, you know? So, and it's very, it's very, that's, that's the truth. I mean, I'm not going to try to dance around that or say that nicely, I think I said it nice enough, but like, that's the truth, right? Because, because if it weren't, if that weren't the case and it was the other way around, then I don't think that we would be in a situation where, you know, black people in our world, in our, in our country today are, are suffering uh, as, as badly as they were just as well back in 92, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and earlier, not much really has, in my opinion, um, changed that much. Um, if we really try to dive in and, and live you know, uh, a, a, a week, a day, a week, month, a year in their own shoes, Yeah. you know? Um, and people, people have a hard time empathizing with that because they don't see that as their real as their reality. You know, um, if you had this conversation with me a year ago, I probably wouldn't have said this, 
you know, and it only got to this point in my life because I had certain experiences that allowed me to be able to see beyond myself. And, and, uh, um, are there, is there a specific or particular experiences that you would share? Yeah, sure. Why not? Because, you know, we talked about so much different things today. Why not add another thing to the mix? Right. So, um, I, I shared this on, on another podcast. I wasn't expecting to about a few weeks back for a, a good friend of mine, but, um, like I've been pretty much straight edge my entire life, like up until like about 33 or so. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like thir- 33, I think I smoked like my, my first joint just because, um, you know, with my, 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 my then fiance and now wife, we, we just tried it because I never touched anything when I was a kid. Like I don't drink alcohol. I don't, I don't do any of that type of stuff. So it's like, cool. Then I started experimenting with some other things. And like the only thing that has really connected me to like, humans and the world and understanding that with you cannot do this without each other like no matter what it is in life right we're we're social creatures and without understanding that and and knowing that you cannot do things uh, in life in the long term without support of each other the thing that got me there were psychedelics (laughs) essentially magic mushrooms and, and 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 that world of of just mental um, uh, adventure, you know, an adventure in a sense of not just the the superficial visual cool things that you see, but more so about like internal healing and, you know, spiritual connection. Like I am the furthest person from being spiritual or religious at all. Right. But, you know, to, to constant, to the point of like, I definitely denied, you know, having to lean on, on God as a figure of support or anything like that all growing up, even till like the last year, you know, very science-based, very realistic, very, um, very by the facts kind of person, you know, but in feeling this connection that you have to, you know, the planet and to each other now and understanding like how critical and crucial it is to know one's place in that, um, I was only able to really feel that in my soul because of my experience yeah. on, and, and it hit me like so positively. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Just, um, I mean, we could spend like a whole nother, like three hours talking about that. You know, we'll do it one day. Let's <laughs> we'll come back. We'll do it again. It's yeah, man. Like I, I definitely, it's definitely giving me much more time. Um, my first experience was early on this year before mm-hmm. the pandemic hit. And, um, I was with my wife and, and, and a couple of her cousins and we, we had the most amazing afternoon watching the sunset. But when we came home, a lot of it was just spent with my wife. Like I've never cried as hard as I ever did in my life yeah. at that time. And, and like being able to say things to her that I should have said to her like 10 years ago, you know, and, and a lot of this healing, like I can't, I can't express how beneficial it was, at least for me. Yeah. And the way that I experienced it um, in a way that healed a lot of familial problems that I had with my parents. And so, you know, you could spend, you know, hundreds of and, and thousands of dollars uh, on therapy with a professional for years on end. Or you can actually come to that, you know, by organically eating and consuming this this plant. It's not a plant. It's a fungi. But you know, other plant-based types of, of mental reform that now rejuvenates you to almost feeling reborn, you know, like 
could never have thought in a million years that I would have ever, you know, you talk about like trying to say that you're, you grow up in one way and thinking that this is the way that things have to be and how you operate your life, you know, uh, very anti-drugs, very anti-substance, things like that. And then you come across something and are open-minded to say, you know what, I'm old enough to be responsible now. I'm old enough to at least want to see what this is like, you know what I mean? And being able to take that step and see the benefit that comes out of it. And it wasn't just coming into it and say like, hey, I just want to, I just want to have a trip. No, I, I actually researched and talked to friends that shared the, these experience of, of repairing like years of trauma, like spiritual and, and psychological and mental trauma that you have for whatever reasons. And, you know, to the point that sometimes even with research nowadays is, is uh, treating PTSD and and severe addiction, you know, like, there's a revolution happening there, you know, that's, that's, that's been gaining a lot of steam. And I feel like, man, I wish I could just say publicly, and I probably am right now just saying it, that if everyone just took like ayahuasca or mushrooms, the world would be so much better than, than where we are currently, you know, right, right now. And I used to joke that like, you know, people would just say that and, and be like, oh, you know, uh, that's just what this person who's you know this this heathen is gonna say because that's what they say when they're when they're doing those things i wholeheartedly believe it you know i wholeheartedly understand what the beatles went through during their time you know uh peace love and understanding i know it sounds so cheesy but man dude no yeah it it, until you feel it and understand like and, and internalize it in in like the most intense way do you just not ignored anymore you know yeah like the whole hippie movement about like peace and love like i get what they were trying to do you know like i could never imagine in 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 all of my years of being alive that i could identify and 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 empathize with those people you Mm -hmm. know because i just i just never knew and then now it's like cool man i can see where things are everything on the table and then i can you know um i can make a decision more, more, uh, certainly about where I want to stand on that, on each side of that line. Yeah. And certainly, you know, to each their own, but there is definitely a correlation to many of those substances and empathy and how it affects and increases empathy short term and long term. Yeah. For you, I mean, basically what you're saying is that these experiences that you had allowed you to kind of, if, if I'm correct, see outside of yourself, put some of these walls down and let you, you know, your ego is in the way it's a wall. And if you can't bring the wall down, well, here's a way that you can look on the other side of the wall and realize that it's safe and better. And then yes. live, live over there. Uh, like a thousand million percent of what you just said for sure, dude. Like, you know, during, during my more introspective experience with it, when I was, you know, hugging my wife and crying and like, I was just, kind of, it, it was rambling, but it was rambling in a sense of, getting away from concern about myself and being more concerned about like, you know, obviously like some of the things I I was thinking was like, you know, humans are just so off with each other, you know, obviously that type of stuff, silly stuff. Like we don't deserve dogs. And I'm looking over at Dexter, like (laughs) wanting to like give him a hug. But then, you know, thinking about like people who are innovators and, and disruptors, right? Like Steve Jobs, for example, and trying to identify with him and like his experience and why he was who he was, you know, like social media, I, I think about it in, in the grand scheme of things and, and just, you know, creating certain devices of things. They're all ways for 
people to connect with each other. You know, like the objective for for Steve Jobs, and I'll just speak for him because that's what I feel that I I closely most closely identify with was that it wasn't about creating a company that made a shit ton of money. Uh, obviously, that was a given, right? But mm-hmm. like you produce things in life, you create things in life that help people become more connected and more closely connected with each other, hopefully for the betterment of humanity. Yeah. Right. Social media, whether it was intended on, you know, creating these, 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 this forum for people, for like-minded people to come about with each other and build each other up or, or, or what, but it was still a way to, to bring people together, to connect each other together. Right. Like I think without, without social media, what would business look like in our industry without it? You know, like, I don't know, they'd be crazy because we would definitely not be finding each other with, you know, like this. Um, and I, I know that that's such like a basic and obvious concept, but to really understand the fact that we do things in life, I think to help each other out. And if that's the objective, you know, of course you need to pay bills and of course you need to have a roof over your head to, for shelter to protect yourself and your loved ones, you know, but really getting down back to the point and, and seeing who you want to be in life. I'm, it's kind of rejuvenated me to like, think about how I want to tell stories with a camera now, rather than to be solely identified as like a wedding photographer, you yeah. know? So yeah. Um, anyways, like, no, that's awesome, man. And I think, you know, connection and community is in my opinion, what we as people are wired to actually do and actually be, um, we're, we're wired to be connected. We're wired to be a part of a community. And I do think to some degree, you know, the intention of a lot of social media was connection, but it has in many ways created a, a great disconnect. And it's in some ways helped people stay inside of their ego and stay yeah. on their side of the wall. And so yeah. there's, you know, there's many different ways that we can, but I think what's really important is that, to have a united community or just to be individual, better people that we need to make sure we act, we are actually connecting and that we're getting around those walls that are, that are just ourselves, that is our ego, our id, um, and that we're actually connecting. And, you know, it com- comes back to those conversations of debate. So many people, it's what's the, I think it's a fight club quote or some movie that um, people are, they're not having conversations. They're just, and the person says, waiting their turn to talk. It's I'm, I'm butchering that, but that's what a lot of debate is. Like we're in our ego. Yeah. And instead of us talking, I'm just waiting for you to shut up so I can talk and make my point. And so now there is no community. There is no conversation. There is no growth. And if we can get past that and actually connect and actually have conversations, we can heal as a community, as an individual, um, and as, as, you know, as families in so many ways. It's easier said than done, but sure. it's 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 essential for for progress. Yeah, no, for sure, dude, totally. Um, yeah, you know, like a, a few points you just mentioned, like you know, of course, the way that I I would I would say and describe how what social media was and and the purpose of it, and then you see that you see the direction that so many different directions that people engage with it. You know, obviously to you know, in, in rooms of being able with similar mindsets and, you know, perpetuating that confirmation bias also, you know, like th- those are byproducts of, of, of social interactions for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's human nature, you know, but um, I will say that, that, you know, there was a part in, in that I always would see people like, Oh, I disagree with you. So I'm going to unfriend you, you know, yeah. like, 
or, you know, you believe this, so I'm going to unfriend you. It's like, uh, as somebody who, if I did that, you know, especially in the finance world, obviously, I wouldn't be able to see what my competitor or my enemy, quote unquote, uh, what their true mindset is, yep. right? Like, not to be not to be insidious to say, to do what Sun Tzu recommends is like, you know, keep your friends closer, close, but keep your enemies closer, you know? Right. But in doing so, it helps you understand where they're truly coming from. And and if you truly empathize and get out of yourself and thinking that you want to just surround yourself with happiness and fluffiness and, and all this pretty shit, you know, like in the real world, some people have that luxury, some people don't, you know, and, and, and in the real world, if we want to do better by each other, then, then I need to understand my fellow human as polar opposite as he or she, uh, you know, is than I am, yeah. you know? So doing so that I was able to have that much more tolerance this year. And, and after my experience on, on psychedelics, it really, like you said, you know, people are very much in, in the mode of wanting to jump in and, and, and just interject what they have to say. But this entire experience allowed me to, and, and man, dude, I am definitely the type to try to jump in and like get my, my words in. Right. And, and, and so after that experience, it was more about, let me just truly like give myself to you yeah. by being present and, and really trying to, to internalize every word that you say, you know, so that I can not misinterpret what you're trying to say, number one, right, by, by only half-ass listening to what you're saying, mm-hmm. but really see why you're choosing to say what you're saying, you know, like, where is that deriving from, from, from your personality, from your personal experiences and whatnot. So, um, yeah. So in doing so, like, it's just allowed me to become closer to people who I, I thought that I was close with before, you know, and, and, and to even those who uh, I'm not that close with to actually give them the respect that people should be giving each other when you're making that person feel valued and being heard and what they're saying is actually important, right. you know, um, a, a, especially for those who you disagree with the, the most, you know, <laughs> like yeah. uh, it's not easy for sure. Like you said, easier said than done, but um, it's definitely a start, at least a pathway, a starting point on a path to, to get to where we need to be. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of not unfriending. It can be really hard. Yeah, but if, you, if you if you are in that cycle of constantly unfriending every time someone has an opposite opinion, then you're just living in. I mean, Facebook just becomes your confirmation bias bubble, yeah. just a world of to tell you that you're right about everything. And right. if if that's what you're seeing on your feed, that everything you think you're right about, then it's impossible. So that should tell you something, right? Um, sometimes I, I had for the first time I had to pause someone because it was a family member, and I knew that that was the best. The best thing I could do for the greater good of my family was not to have an argument, but yeah. I don't unfriend. So it's the first mm-hmm. time I did take, uh, you, did, you can do like the pause thing. Yeah, no, and that, that's also another point too. It's very important that you you protect your mental health because I thought that I had quite the bit of endurance when it can't, comes to this, these types of, you know, things that you have to deal with emotionally, yeah. especially in more recent times than, than not. And and even then, I found myself needing to step away from a, a comment that I opposed or disagreed with and needing to reform my thoughts about how to respond respectfully, but also, you know, um, and understanding what, what that person said and, and really hearing, you know, and internalizing yeah. each of, 
of the words that they're that they're sharing with me you know yeah. and in doing so my response can be more if more productive you know because a lot of times it just starts getting into this whole like back and forth thing. It's mm-hmm. like no one knows what the real point is anymore it's just about who the loud person is to want to be heard you know yeah. yep. um so i agree yeah. man this has been incredible um <laughs> so yeah, did you expect to get into all these different topics that we covered? No, today? but that's, that's the beauty of it. I think, yeah, I mean, one of my goals with the the whole podcast is to bring in wedding industry uh, friends and leaders and have like real conversations. And and I never, you know, so I love you know kind of just seeing where the conversation goes. I think I learned a ton during this. We're an hour and forty one in, um, so I appreciate it. Um, and I'm happy that we, where we got, and we definitely can come back and like you said, do another three hours on, on different topics. Um, I, I would, for anyone that has gotten all the way into this podcast, I would maybe issue a challenge to you. And that would be to find someone, uh, friend or, or acquaintance that has an opposite opinion of you on something, whether it's a social or political issue and tell them you want to sit down and talk to them about it or have a phone call and go into it with no intention of changing their mind <laughs> and only the intention of learning something and and see how that goes. So Patrick, again, this was amazing. Thank you so much for taking out the time in your day uh, to sit down and have the conversation. Um, I really appreciate it. No problem, man. Of course, it was a, um, it, it was an honor to, to at least, uh, yeah, go share share some some interesting stories and experiences with you, and hopefully, um, listeners can get something useful out of this. <laughs>